I'm going to begin this morning in John chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. I'm going to read through and then introduce what our topic is this morning. Jesus said, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I also, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. And neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. And if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, then you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers, and such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, and now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you, and so that your joy may be complete. So we are almost finished a series that I've entitled Abide. This will be the second last week. Next week will be our final week. And what we've been doing is reflecting on what it means to abide in Christ. Most translations uh, will substitute the word abide for remain, but the idea is the same. What does it mean to remain or abide in Christ? When life teaches us, if we're paying attention, that it's very easy to drift out of connection with, out of connection of intimacy with Christ. And this call to abide in Christ is a command that Jesus gives us in this passage. And Jesus makes it clear that if we abide in him, we will bear fruit. And that means that there's going to be a fruitfulness to our lives that has supernatural roots, meaning there's a, there will be a fruitfulness to our lives that um, can't be realized simply through human strategy and human striving. And so we've been exploring different dimensions of our lives and what it looks like to remain in Christ within these dimensions. And I've been sharing some practical ways to live into this invitation to depth and fruitful, fruitfulness in our lives. Because I think as a Christian, you, you crave this. You don't always know how to access it and take hold of the life that is truly life. But we all crave this abundant life that Jesus offers us. And it is on offer and it, it doesn't require um, perfection it just requires paying attention to what Jesus says and then putting it into practice. Now, most weeks we've highlighted five characteristics of Christians whose lives are increasingly characterized by depth and fruitfulness. And those characteristics were there are Christians who build rituals into their lives so that they continue doing good things and stay in good patterns even when they don't feel like it. They maintain accountability, close friendships and confidants who they can share life with and iron sharpening iron conversations can happen. They grow through hardships. They practice certain core spiritual disciplines, scripture, prayer, uh, gathering, um, corporate worship, and they establish all their activity in the gospel of grace. They're not striving from a place of insecurity and anxiety, and I hope God will love me more and bless me more, and I need to do this in order to be accepted by God. 
the gospel is we are accepted, we are loved, we are adopted, we are now secure in Christ. Now what we're doing is simply learning to live from that position. We don't live in order to secure that position. That's more religion. You do these things, then maybe God will bless you, let you in. The gospel is God has blessed you, secured you. Now you can learn to live from that place of freedom and security. Now, among those five factors, probably number three was the most surprising to people. I got quite a few emails and interactions from people who were intrigued and or confused by growth through hardships. So that's what I want to talk about today. What does it look like, and why is it so important to abide in Christ through times of hardship and suffering? Learning to remain in Jesus through seasons of suffering is just super, super important because suffering will define a large part of our lives. And therefore, if you're only prepared, if you're only learning how to abide in Christ when everything's working out, and you're not experiencing suffering, and you're not experiencing hardships, and the seas are calm, so to speak, then you are not preparing yourself for a lot of life. But the good news is that even in times of suffering, if we remain in Jesus, obeying his commands, staying rooted to his love, staying rooted to his grace, he says that we will bear fruit. Bearing fruit isn't a condition of our circumstances. It's a condition of our connectedness to Jesus. And so we have to understand that, that this fruitfulness, this life of depth that Jesus has for us, implicitly saying, if you remain in me, suffering and hardships won't, um, won't jeopardize that at all. In fact, as you might discover, it might even bring a kind of fruitfulness into your life and a kind of depth into your Christian walk that maybe wouldn't have been possible otherwise. The Bible reveals to us how we can suffer well. Or maybe in the context of this series, we might think of it as how can we suffer fruitfully? How can we suffer? How do we move through suffering so that something good and glorious emerges? and our suffering isn't wasted. The Bible gives us a roadmap through which we can learn to leverage times of pain and disappointment and hurt and suffering in order to abide in Jesus and bear fruit that leads to God's glory as a result. So let me talk about how to suffer suffer fruitfully a little bit. Now, of all the books in the Bible, you might be able to make the argument that no one book in the Bible focuses on the dual themes of suffering and glory and their interplay as much as the first book of Peter. This epistle was written to an early group of Christians who were facing significant persecution for being a Christian, not being made, not being teased at school or on your sports team or at work or people giving little passive-aggressive jabs. Imprisonment, beatings, social, um, being socially isolated, economically imperiled because they've decided that there is no king and there is no Lord but Jesus. This was an epistle, which is a fancy Bible word that means letter to a group of Christians, that is meant to give them a bigger understanding of what is actually happening as they're moving through the suffering and how it's connected to the glories that they are going to enter into into the future. So as you read 1 Peter, something becomes really obvious. Suffering is something that Christians should always see coming. Christians should not be surprised by suffering. 
Nowhere in 1 Peter does the Holy Spirit, through Peter, give any indication that suffering is abnormal in the life of a Christian, that it's non-normative, that it's out of step with what a genuine, robust, uh, thriving Christian life will look like. The whole book trains early Christians to expect suffering and then how to respond to it. And why is that presumption there for Peter writing to these early group of Christians? Well, one of the things that becomes clear as you read through 1 Peter is that Peter wants to make sure these early Christians understand that they are living in what, have call, what some have called the overlap of the ages. So there's a little graphic in your handout, and we can put it up on, up on the screen here, Dan. So Christians are living in an overlap of two ages. So before Jesus comes, before the incarnation, you have what has sometimes been referred to as the present age, or Jewish theologians talked about the present age. It's defined by sin and death and decay. God created a good world, but man chose to rebel against God, has twisted everything good in God's world, and so there's corruption that bleeds through every aspect of life. And so our experience of life is marked predominantly by suffering and hardship. That is the age that existed, and it's defined by sin and death and um, anti-God forces of Satan having reign to a certain degree in this life. However, when Jesus comes, and through his life and death and resurrection, he inaugurates that's a fancy word that basically just means formally starts a new age. He talks about the kingdom of God being established. And sometimes Jesus talked about the kingdom of God as if it was a present reality, and sometimes he referred to it as if it was something that was coming in the future. And that's because sometimes he was talking about ways in which the kingdom has broken into this present age. It started, it's not fully consummated or realized, that won't happen until Jesus comes back a second time and brings a complete end to the present age of sin and death. But what that means for Christians is that we live in the overlap of these ages. We have one foot, as it were, in a world where sin and death are still given a certain leeway and reign, and yet we are also citizens of a new age and a new kingdom, and a new power, we are now under the rule and reign of God. And this means that until Jesus comes back, Christians should expect to live with the evidences of each age emerging in our lives. So we shouldn't be surprised, and this is something that Peter wants to impress on first Christians, when your life is full of weeds and amazing harvest, gold and dross, joy and sorrow, hope and heartache, suffering and salvation, miraculous healing, and life-taking diseases. Jesus himself speaks to this tension of living in the overlap of these ages when he encourages his disciples with these words, John 16, 33, in this world, you will have trouble. So that's, that's one of those promises of Scripture that you don't find in those like little books of the top 50 promises of Scripture. 
This is a promise from Jesus. In this world, you will have, tr- you will have trouble because you're still living in this present age. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So something definitively different has been started through my life and death and resurrection. The kingdom of God is breaking forth in a new way. Now the spirit has been poured out at Pentecost. There is a new power that is unleashed into the world. You will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. Not in that full sense, that won't happen until Jesus returns as conquering king to destroy the powers of sin and death and the devil in their totality. And so in between, we expect trouble, but also expect to experience God's power at work in and through us, individually and as a community. In his commentary on Romans 8, John Stott says this. He says, Caught in the tension between what God has inaugurated by giving us the Spirit through the gospel and what's going to be consummated when Jesus returns, we groan with discomfort and longing. Because the indwelling Spirit gives us joy and the coming glory gives us hope but the interim suspense gives us pain. Peter, writing to Christians, just like you and me, who are walking through things that we are right now, who are experiencing life in the overlap of these ages, joy and sorrow mingled together in a way that is frustrating and mysterious, he wants them to know that they can not only, imbi- they can not only abide in Jesus during times of suffering, but that these times can become ones defined by remarkable depth and fruitfulness. He doesn't see suffering as some great impediment to what God wants to do in and through your life. So I want to do a quick little study of 1 Peter 5, verses 6 to 11. I'm going to read the passage because this comes at the end of um, this epistle, this letter, and it's a little bit of a bullet point list of to people who are walking through the valley of the shadow of death and experiencing life in the overlap of the ages and are experiencing real suffering and persecution, this is the roadmap of how to remain in Jesus and bear fruit as a Christian. The Holy Spirit, through Peter, writes these words, beginning in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. To him... Be the power forever and ever. Amen. The first thing that Peter challenges the Christians to do is to get their eyes off of themselves. He says in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Now think about the context of this. He's writing to people who are suffering, who are being persecuted significantly. And he says, humble yourselves. That feels like it's unnecessary or redundant, right? I mean, haven't they already been humbled? Because they're suffering. Why would Peter call them to humble themselves? Have they done something wrong? No, he's not calling them to repentance. 
He's calling them to humble themselves. And to humble yourself is to acknowledge your proper place in the universe. To acknowledge that God is God and you are not. Humbling yourself isn't thinking less of yourself, being self-deprecating and magnifying and amplifying your faults and failures. Being humble is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself simply less because you are more and more fascinated and taken in by the glory of who God is. And the fastest way to do that, the fastest way to get your eyes off of yourself and to humble yourself is to take time individually and collectively to worship. To worship God and exalt him through prayer and praise and songs and to praise him and to adore him. And that call to worship is especially important when we suffer because God is still great even if our lives and circumstances are not great. And God should still be sought and submitted to even if we're in a state of complete disorientation and panic. There's a great prayer that I learned about this year in 2 Chronicles 20, 12, where the people say to God, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I have no idea what to do in this situation, God, but our eyes are on you. That is part of what it means to humble yourself. I'm in pain, I'm in suffering, I don't have the strategies, I don't have the tools, I don't know the tricks, I don't know the way forward, God, but my eyes are on you. You are my hope, you are my deliverer, I'm going to trust you. And worship is very, worship is a counterintuitive movement when you are suffering. Because usually we worship and praise God, maybe I shouldn't say we, I, usually I worship and praise God, most intensely in response to good things that are happening to me. So when things go really well, then it's like, praise God, this is awesome. I show up on Sunday and I'm pumped. And I'm raising my hands and I'm singing from my guts. But suffering fruitfully will mean learning how to worship God in response to suffering and not just in response to blessing. Upon learning the series of catastrophes that have befallen him, the Bible says that Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, and then he fell to the ground in worship. Job's instinctive response to great suffering was not to harden his heart and to pull away from God. It was to worship and to process what he was going through in the context of declaring God's greatness. And so when we suffer, we have to make that counterintuitive movement and instead of fixating on ourselves and our struggles and figuring out how do we get out of this pain, we fixate on God through worship, privately and corporately. Now the next point that Peter says is a really interesting um, countertension because he says, take your eyes off yourself, put them on God, but take time to lament. Take time to lament. He says, cast all your anxiety or cares on him because he cares for you. And that's really important because humbling yourself before God does not mean denying your needs, denying your wants, denying the pain, minimizing it, um, sugarcoating your suffering before God or other people. Instead of stuffing our burdens, 
in the context of worship, when we suffer, we must learn to cast our cares upon God. And the word cast in the Greek is a, is a pretty strong word. It doesn't mean bring or like present. It means to like huck or to throw. So it would be like just having a bunch of stuff and just throwing it out there, tossing it before God. It's a word that speaks to a certain level of complete abandonment to vulnerability. It's not presenting, or it's not bringing to God some kind of packaged, presentable offering of, of grief. It's saying, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm scared. This is what I'm carrying. This is my, anxi- my, anxi- my anxiety level on this. This is as real as I can get, God. I'm not holding anything back. And anxiety, and this is why the scriptures have a, translators have a, a difficult time figuring out anxiety or cares or burdens, because the Greek word uh, is challenging to translate, and it kind of means any feeling of apprehension or distress in view of possible danger. Just apprehension, distress, this sense of threat, the sense of being overwhelmed. Peter says, focus on God, but cast all your anxieties on him. Get it out. And you can bring these things to God boldly, emotionally, nakedly, unreservedly, because they are received into the heart of God, because God cares for you. God really, really does care and love you. Suffering evokes powerful and painful emotions. And the spiritual person does not simply dismiss those or um, place a, a few scriptural band-aids on them and say, oh, they're not a big deal. I, I'm strong in the Lord. We, 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 don't, we don't use language to deny what's actually really happening. We use biblical language to draw out the cast our burdens before God. When we, experience these emo- when we experience these emotions, if we stuff them, if we ignore them, if we deny them, if we don't cast them upon God, this actually prevents our healing. It prevents learning. It prevents our maturation. It stunts our growth. It stunts what God wants to do in through our healing. Third thing that Peter says is watch out. In verse 8, he says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Suffering is a time of intense spiritual vulnerability. It will be easy for you to use your pain as an excuse to collapse into sinful habits and behaviors and into greater selfishness. That will become very, very easy when you start to experience deep suffering. And Peter's saying, you've got to watch out. You need to know. You have to, when suffering comes, when hardships come, you have to understand this is a window where you are going to be vulnerable in many ways, but especially to spiritual attack and discouragement. And therefore, point four in verse nine, he says, resist the enemy by standing firm in the faith. Verse nine, resist him, referring to the devil, standing firm in the faith. Peter says, this is not the time to collapse into self-pity, into selfishness, and to say, well, what's the point? I was following God because I thought that would make everything work out. Now things aren't working out, so whatever. Flip the table and start moving intentionally into behaviors and sinful behaviors that are destructive, and you just make things worse. Peter says, no, this is the time to double down on God's grace and the habits that it, God uses to strengthen you. 
to go deeper into prayer, to go deeper into scripture, deeper into accountability, worship your guts out, resist the enemy during this season of suffering by securing yourself to Christ through word and prayer and worship and fellowship and service. Again, when we suffer, it's so easy for us to pull the whole world in on ourselves. It's important that we serve, that we go out of our way in trying to bring joy and relief to other people who are suffering. And then lastly, Peter says, when you're suffering, I want you, early Christians, to live in anticipation of God's strengthening. In verse 10, he says, And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Please notice what Peter does not promise. He does not say that God will, after you've suffered a little while, make everything better. That's heaven. That's the age to come, God's new age that is broken in now but isn't fully experienced, won't be fully consummated until Jesus returns. So Peter does not say, after you've suffered a little bit, God will make everything better. Sometimes we absolutely do receive a foretaste of that kingdom of God, new age breaking in to our lives. We, sometimes we do experience a dramatic and miraculous healing, um, supernatural relief, clearly God-directed deliverance from one situation to another. Of course we do, because we live in an age where the kingdom of God, by the power of the Spirit and the gospel, are breaking into this age. So of course we're going to expect those things to happen. But that's not what the Holy Spirit, through Peter, instructs us to expect normatively across our lives. The promise is given that after you have suffered a little while, God will make you strong. And he will make you firm. And he will make you steadfast. And that means that while we suffer, you can live every day in anticipation that God will strengthen you to endure and move through what you're walking through. Almost every day at my gym, I suffer for a little while. It's about 45 minutes of suffering. But after I've suffered... When I stop and when I transition from that space, my body begins to be restored and strengthened. My body has all kinds of mechanisms, God-given mechanisms that begin to um, bring and strengthen me from the inside so that within a few minutes sometimes, I'm able to stand and I'm able to be strong and I'm able to be steadfast. And Peter says that is what we can expect to happen as we seek to suffer fruitfully for Jesus. Not that God will remove the suffering all the time, although sometimes he will. Don't mis, don't, don't, um, please don't mishear me. 
But the normative pattern is that God strengthens us in the midst of suffering to be firm in the faith and to be faithful in continuing to be fruitful despite our circumstances not being ideal, not, not being ideally suited to what we would think you, it would have to be for us to be fruitful. That's what I mean. To suffer fruitfully for Jesus means to expect that God is going to strengthen us in seasons of suffering. I like this passage because it, it teaches me and it challenges me that God has chosen not to display his power during this life and this overlap of the ages by simply preventing all suffering in the life of a believer. God could have chosen to do that. Say, when you become a Christian, you get wrapped with spiritual bubble wrap, force field, nothing touches you. That's what will glorify me. That when people say, hey, that person became a Christian, their life is free from any hardship and suffering. Although you let your imagination run with that, you can imagine very quickly that a lot of people would then choose to become Christians for all the wrong reasons, right? They want the gift, not the giver. So God in his wisdom says, I will give you myself. I will draw near to you as you draw near, near to me in worship. And sometimes I will alleviate suffering. Sometimes I will bring dramatic deliverance out of suffering. But often I will bring deliverance through suffering by strengthening you. And so God, instead of just preventing all suffering in the life of a believer, he's chosen to work through suffering to accomplish his purposes, to refine and strengthen his people, to build his church, and to display his death-defying glory. And so because we live in the overlap of the ages, we are never promised a life free of suffering. That is waiting for us in heaven and when Jesus returns to create a new heavens and a new earth. So presently, what we are promised is that in all things, including our suffering, in it, God will work for the good of those who love him. That's Romans 8.28. And that means if you are suffering right now and you are a Christian, there is deep meaning and significance to what you're going through. And even if it's not perceivable to you, not perceptible to you, God is doing something significant and important in your suffering. Now, I know, I know those are easy words to say, not as easy to hear when you're, when you're in a state of suffering, right? Someone might say, well, Jeff, honestly, I don't see that. I don't feel that. My faith is weak. I kind of, I just, honestly, I, I kind of doubt that. It doesn't feel to me this is being used for any grand purpose or bringing God's glory or helping me mature and grow in my faith. And if you think that, I want you to be comforted by the fact that you are not the first Christian to be assaulted by those doubts and you will not be the last. But I want you to think about this. On the evening of Good Friday, Jesus is suffering to his disciples and to those who watched it unfold looked like a catastrophic tragedy, an irredeemable loss, a complete dead end to hope and to life. To those watching, Jesus hanging on the cross, crying out to God, breathing his last breath, that seemed to them like evidence that hope was lost and that God had completely abandoned Jesus to destruction and humiliation. And if you would have told the disciples that actually what they're witnessing has deep meaning and significance 
for them and the whole world, they would have said, I don't see it. I don't feel it. And honestly, my faith is so weak, I kind of doubt it. But then three days later, this catastrophe is redeemed into something triumphant and glorious. And in the light of the resurrection, Jesus' suffering are actually revealed to be the greatest evidence of God's glory and power and love. It's the cross that was the very means through which God's sin-destroying power and redeeming presence could be unleashed into the world. And so that means the cross warns me as a preacher in two directions. That God came and endured the cross on our behalf and suffered real pain, substantial suffering, means I need to be careful as a preacher never to diminish people's pain, never to diminish suffering and grief and anger and what can feel like a God-forsaken heartache that can absolutely envelop those who are suffering. But the empty tomb and the resurrected Savior issues a greater warning to me still, and that is this. Never diminish the power of God to use suffering for purposes that are stunningly beautiful, life-transforming, and eternally redeeming. Jesus suffered fruitfully for you. Trust him to grace you with the means to suffer fruitfully for him. Let's pray. God, this, this scripture before us this morning from 1 Peter is, it is a doozy. And I pray that by your spirit, your word would do its work in our lives individually and as a church. You would form us through this text to be a people who are passionate to learn what it means to suffer for your glory. To not run from suffering or run from you in the midst of suffering, but run towards you. To learn what it means to worship and to suffer well and fruitfully for you, God. That is a that is a big challenge to our hearts, God. That demands a lot of faith, and I pray that you would give us strength and sustain us to move into that journey together. In Jesus' name.